somebody understands the power of cinema more than a dictator. The way flickering celluloid can manipulate filmgoers to laugh, cry, and jump out of their seats in fear can be quite an attractive tool to an iron-fisted ruler who is looking to subjugate the hearts and minds of his country's populace. Hitler and Stalin understood this to some extent. Both knew how to push propaganda to moviegoers in an effort to gain support for their respective pursuits. But propaganda is easy, and art is hard. And while Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany both produced films that would receive worldwide recognition, Hitler and Stalin never really cared for their films to affect the world outside of their respective regimes. And as a result, their film industries would never reach the heights of their counterparts in the West. Yet in a small East Asian country lived the film lover and future dictator who thought differently. He believed in his heart of hearts that cinema could both serve the state and garner international attention and acclaim. On today's episode of Slums of Film History, we're going to discuss how this plucky little despot yearned to legitimize the film industry of his little nation state and the extreme lengths he would go to to do so. So join us as we start up the projector and indoctrinate you with Dictator Cinema, the films of North Korea. This is Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from amputation, masturbation, menstruation, and castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slade, how's it going? Hi, how are you, Tom? Uh, I'm fine. We're wrapping up this session of recordings. Doing it. Last episode. Yep. Fucking auction is still going on. <laughs> so stupid. I know. It just keeps going. It's just par for the course here in yeah. Robeth Beach, so having a good time. Before we get started, <laughs> we don't really have anything to put out in this episode. We were talking about it before we hit record. But one thing that came up, uh, I was at a used bookstore in Alexandria, Virginia. It's one of those places where you could trade in books and buy other books and stuff like that. But sometimes when I go to used bookstores like that, I like to find the little pulp novels. You've seen the ones I have, like mm-hmm. some Alfred Hitchcock Presents type ones yeah, and Twilight Zones. Yeah, they're fun. Well, I found one, and it's called The Terrible Game by Dan Tyler Moore. Not to be confused with Mary Tyler, Mary Tyler Moore. Moore. That's her brother. And it's this little crappy little pulp novel, but when I gathered all my shit and I went to the register, I'm showing it to Slate right now because I brought it with me. So this lady, uh, she's checking me out. She's checking you out? She's checking me she's out. Like, she was eyeballing Tom, me. Tom, like, turn Damn, around. Show me that tattoo. Make that ass clap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right so i'm getting checked out my purchase and she's she- like damn that purchase <laughs> make that purchase ass clap we're never gonna get through this episode <laughs> but she looked at that book and she was like you know there's a crappy movie made about that and i was like well i'm a fan of crappy movies and she was like yeah there's this movie called jim cotta you ever heard about it and i'm thinking you're like have i heard you're yeah. like, bitch i own jim cotta <laughs> yeah yeah where you been <laughs> So I proceeded to talk to her about Jim Cotta, and you know we talked about that at great length during our human hunting episode a few seasons back. And I abandoned that copy at your house, which I was glad to see that it is still there. I still have it. You know you watch it. You watch that ball scene. I like the scene where his balls fall out. <laughs> yeah. And you get some still frames of that somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I had a Jim Cotta moment, which is the most random thing in the world. So that's all I have to really put out before this episode. What about you? 
I don't think I have anything. I'm excited to hear about this episode. What is it called again? I just closed my eyes a little bit while you were doing the cold open. So it's called Dictator Cinema. Dictator Cinema, the right. Films of North Korea. I like this. And it started life differently like some of our other ones did in that I originally was looking at this episode as talking about propaganda films or propaganda that was trying to be legit, you know, or whatever. Couldn't figure out the angle. But then as I was looking at the different countries, I'd forgotten about this one incredible story from North Korea that dealt with their film industry. I know this story. Yeah, and probably a lot of our listeners do too, but it's fascinating and it's fun to talk about. But I'm also worried now that I think about it and did this episode, this may not be that slummy. Right. It does seem a little bit highbrow, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, we'll trash it up because the films are fucking terrible. Okay, good. So we'll have fun talking about the movies and just the ridiculousness that surrounds their production so we'll slum it up hopefully great but how i'm going to start this though is i'm going to talk a little bit about soviet cinema i'm going to talk about nazi germany cinema because you can't have a north korean film industry without those predecessors because a lot of it's based on that and these other countries propaganda and film production tie in very heavily to the north korea production You'll, Mm. you'll see what i'm talking about when i get into it but I'm going to give a little bit of history on Soviet cinema and the Nazis, and then we'll move on to where we need to go. So I'm going to start with the Soviet Union. So Russia really didn't have a film industry before the Russian Revolution in 1919. So early at Soviet filmmakers knew they had to kind of start it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. They also didn't want to have a capitalist system like we have where, you know, it's an industry. The state was going to run it. But it turns out Soviet leaders weren't very good at running the film industry. So that was kind of a good thing because that gave a lot of the creators some freedom to experiment. So early Russian cinema had a lot of experimental film techniques and things like this that. from film school, yeah. Yeah, so an example, uh, there's a guy named, I'm going to say his name wrong, Sergei Eisenstein. You said it right. Okay. He's a good example of innovative practices. He's the first one to use like montages in films. That's right. But even though they were able to experiment with style, their themes were still very much for the state. For instance, one of his movies, Death Ray from 1925, tells the story of how workers must overcome the allure of money and power of capitalists and fashion to create the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union. And then another one of his was The Strike, also from 1925. The story is about factory workers rising up and demanding an end to their appalling conditions. And while this all seems like propaganda, and it kind of is, they still were able to use creative means to tell these stories. But after a while, the Soviet government would implement restrictions that would inadvertently like cripple the film industry. Creative Soviet films that would get international acclaim, like Man with a Movie Camera. Did you watch that in film school? Mm-mm. That's supposedly an innovative film. It's considered an experimental masterpiece, but by the time Stalin was fully in charge, movies like that were gone. And the emphasis of even having international acclaim, Stalin didn't give a shit. He thought experimental movies or movies that had complex themes were too much for like the normal populace, so he wanted all films simple, that all the peasants could understand understand and mm-hmm. very simple themes and they're educational not entertainment so by simplifying movies in that way this essentially saw the end of the ideological and artistically complex film and it also saw the drop of films produced overall in ussr throughout the 30s however boris Shumatasky, i know i'm saying this man's name wrong who was the head of the Soviet film industry, was trying to go against this trend and had dreams of actually having a Soviet Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So he drew up these monumental plans to build, like I said, a Hollywood-style city. He wanted to have a whole Hollywood city in the Soviet Union. Additionally, he had hoped that the Soviet Union would move away from exclusively producing propaganda films and to begin to produce more mainstream films that could be released internationally. So he had plans to go international against Stalin, who had no interest in that. Unfortunately, like I said, Stalin would turn against Boris and his plans and he would eventually have him killed Mm. and so that dashed any hope of any type of soviet hollywood style city or anything Mm -hmm. now at this point i'm going to cut 
got off talking about Soviet cinema because like it ebbs and flows over the decades and stuff. But I just wanted to talk about that one part of Soviet film era before I go forward and that they had these really creative films. Still, the themes were kind of propaganda, but leaders in the industry wanted to push it into a more modern and Western film industry and the limits of the system wouldn't allow it. Right, right. So let's move on to Nazi cinema then. So in contrast to the overt political simple messages of the Soviet Union, Nazi filmmakers often tried to keep things a bit more subtle. For the most part, even during the war, most films shown in German cinemas did not have any overt propaganda themes at all. Hitler's chief of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, he understood the power cinema had to influence, but in spite of all this, still intended for most German films to be actual works of art. Mm -hmm. During their time of power, the Nazis produced 523 comedies and musicals, 295 melodrama and biographical pictures, and 123 detective and adventure epics. Most of these films were nearly free of any obvious political message. What Nazi presence one can find in these films was usually very subtle and placed in the background, usually dealing with like the mundane parts of life. Apparently, many of the films produced during that time are so seemingly apolitical that they remain popular with German audiences today. You can watch them today and not be like, that's a fucking Nazi film. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are two very glaring examples of the Nazi propaganda films that had very overt messages. The crowning example is probably Triumph of the Will from 1935. Mm -hmm. And what that is about, if you don't know what that's about, it chronicles the 1934 Nazi Party Congress in Nuremberg, which was attended by more than 700,000 Nazi supporters. The film contains excerpts of speeches given by Nazi leaders at Congress, including Hitler, of course, interspersed with footage of mass troops and public reaction. The overriding theme is the return of Germany as a great power and Hitler as its leader. It is an influential film. I guess it's considered the German version of Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. Okay. It used sense, a, yeah. yeah, it used a lot of complex film techniques and things like that, but it's a garbage movie because of theme. Right. The next propaganda one I just wanted to talk real quick was called The Eternal Jew from 1940. This is fucked up. Yikes. It's portrayed... Yeah. Have you heard of this movie? Mm-mm. And it portrayed Jews in ways that Nazis wanted people in Germany to think about Jews in general, because there was a general feeling among the Nazi hierarchy that its message was not being fully supported by the Germans. So when they were pushing their anti-Jew policies, they were like, but we don't know if the populace is on board, so let's push this mm-hmm. film out. But again, these examples are mostly the exception. Again, most of the messages were very subtle. I'll give you one more example. There's a movie called IQs from 1941, and it's about a woman who has scoliosis, and with no hope of a cure, she and her husband turn to euthanasia. And it's like a dramatic story and a lot of emotion, but it's also a tool for getting people to support killing the sick and ill. Mm-hmm. Right. That was one of their policies they were huh, pushing. Interesting. The movie sounded really good until you told me what it was really trying to do, because, you know, I love movies about euthanasia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a topic. Yeah. But something like the accused Nazi Germany was able to sell its message by not hitting people over the head with it. Another was finding a way to inspire the populace with sweeping epics that would get the population inspired to support the war effort. An example of this is the film Uncle Kruger from 1941. Goebbels intended for this to be the German answer to the Gone with the Wind. The movie tells the story of hero Ohm Kruger, who in the film is telling his life story on his deathbed via flashback. The movie then proceeds to show 132 minutes of anti British propaganda. Mm-hmm. Epic sweeping propaganda, but propaganda nonetheless. As the war progressed and the tide was beginning to turn against the Germans, an additional trend popped up in Nazi cinema, the need to resist the enemy and continue to fight. The film Kohlberg from 1945, which premiered near the war's end, which incidentally was also the most expensive movie the Nazis ever made, 
It was a last-ditch effort to raise determination that the Germans would win the war. The film is set during the Napoleonic period. Kohlberg is a wartime epic that tells the story of a small Prussian town in the Baltic whose local population helped propel the advances on Napoleon. The film was obviously meant to symbolize the Nazi struggle to hold back the advancing British and Americans in the West and the Russians in the East, but it didn't work. Mm-hmm. However, there's no denying that the Germans clearly had more creative freedom and were able to produce a wide variety of movies than their Soviet counterparts at this time. That, in many ways, rivaled their British and American counterparts. They were used not just a way to tell the simple messages as their USSR counterparts during this period, but were set to inspire and rally the German people to affect emotional responses, not just hammering in their political messages. One thing to note, unlike their pre-Stalin Soviet cinema, Nazi-era filmmaking seemed less concerned with attaining international monetary success and accolades. These are the lessons that would be learned and applied to some measure going forward as we now get to North Korea. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty big preamble, but it ties into the philosophy of what's yeah, sure. going forward. So, North Korean cinema. North Korean cinema began with the division of the Korean Peninsula and has been sustained since then by the ruling Kim dynasty. So, the Kim family runs North Korea pretty shittily, but they run North Korea. Hello, Kim. Kim Il-sung and his successor, Kim Jong-il, were both big film lovers and sought to produce propaganda films based on the Juche ideology, which is a sort of bastardized Marxist-Leninist ideology that I won't presume to have any understanding of except to say that it produces really shitty films Mm -hmm. but let me back up a sec and give a very brief and very simplified explanation of the division of north and south korea the Korean Peninsula was ruled by Japan during most of the 20th century until the end of World War II. At the end of the war, the Allies, while figuring out what to do with Korea, the leaders reached an understanding that Korea would be liberated from Japan, but would be placed under international trusteeship until the Koreans would be deemed ready for self-rule. In the last days of the war, the U.S. proposed dividing the Korean Peninsula into two occupied zones, a U.S. and Soviet one, with the 38th parallel being the dividing line. The Soviets accepted their proposal and agreed to divide Korea. Of course, the deal fell through because of the Cold War. The U.S. backed the South, the Soviet Union backed the North, both laid claim to the whole peninsula, and then Kim Il-sung came to power in the North, and in 1950, the North went to war with the South. The Korean War ended in an armistice that divided the country on the 38th parallel, like I said, and this armistice is still active today. In the years that follow, the Korean Peninsula has been an interesting look at how both countries have thrived since, one under democracy and one under socialist dictatorship. This includes the arts as well, and specifically, for the purposes of this show, film. North Korean leader Kim Il-sung believed in Lenin's maxim, cinema is the most important of all arts. Accordingly, since the country's division, North Korean films have often been used as vehicles for instilling government ideology to the people. So you would see a common theme in these movies, particularly themes of martyrdom, sacrifice of the nation. That was one of the things. It was always like fighting for the nation, you know, Mm -hmm. in one way or another. Personal sacrifice for the nation. Another favorite theme is the happiness of the current society. Like, we live in a great society. Mm -hmm. Standing in line for dirt is a fucking great thing. All film production is supervised by the Workers' Party of Korea, and while the majority of North Korean films were just straight-up propaganda, there were a few that transcended or tried to their trappings, but more on that in a little bit. It's really hard to know how many films were and are typically produced in North Korea annually, but it's believed to average around 20, give or take. But let's talk about the firsts. Okay. So the first film I could find that was produced in North Korea was a film called My Home Village from 1949. The film portrays the liberation of Korea from the Japanese. This is a theme that will come back a lot. Mm -hmm. By Japanese colonial rule in 1945. Now let me step back and say that after the division of Korea, following the defeat of the Japanese Empire in World War II, both filmmakers from North and South Korea were kind of trying to compete to produce the first Korean film on the peninsula. The South Koreans managed to make a film first called Viva Freedom. And that was in 1946. Also a film that dealt with the Japanese occupation of the Korean peninsula. But back to my home village, it was Soviet funded, shot on 35 millimeter, and it was boring as fuck. 
You can kind of watch. I think some of these I've found links on YouTube and it's garbage. They're so goddamn boring. How do we have these? Like North Korea is so buttoned up about not wanting anybody to know what's going on over there and everything. Like, how do we have these? So hold on to that question, because once we get through the story, we might be able to piece it together. I have some answers, but then let's we'll discuss it. Okay. Did you go get them? Spoiler. Yeah. God damn it. Yes. <laughs> I, I drove into North Korea, mm-hmm. loaded them all the shit in my truck, yeah. and just got the hell out of got there. Out. That's what I had to do in the army. I yeah. just go to North Korea and steal shit. Yeah. Back to my home village. I don't think it was ever released internationally. And as you see, most of these North Korean films were only released in North Korea because, again, they're propaganda and they're boring as fuck. Fun fact, supposedly Kim Il-sung's son... Kim Jong-il attended a preview of the film. And even at the age of seven, as the story goes, he like handed critical notes to the filmmakers, pointing out the flaws in filmmaking Mm -hmm. and whatnot, which is a good table setting to show how much of a film connoisseur Kim Jong-il would turn out to be. And how old is he? Seven at the time when this movie came out. Yeah. He's like, here's my note. He's like, here's my notes. What? What are you going to say? Yeah, do better. Yeah. God, what a little fucker, man. I like him. (laughs) Okay, moving on. It's hard to know what other films were produced at this time because the Korean War started a year after My Home Village was released and nearly all studios and film archives were destroyed during the Korean War. And after 1953, studios had to be rebuilt. So we'll jump ahead in time a bit. Let's jump to the 60s because a big thing happened then, which was Kim Il-sung made a famous call for Juche art in 1966. I mentioned that earlier. And what he said was, our art should develop in a revolutionary way, reflecting the socialist content with the national form. That's the quote in English. This would set the tone for all North Korean films going forward. As far as films produced at this time, I don't have a lot of info. There were a few, but not many stand out. But I want to move to the 70s because that's when things really start heating up. Mm Mm-hmm. So first in 1971, there was a four-hour black-and-white movie adaptation of a famous North Korean opera called Sea of Blood. And Sea of Blood is set in the 1930s during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Imagine that. And it follows the life of protagonist Sun Yu. Sun Yu. I'm I'm fucking up names left to right. You know how I roll. Mm -hmm. And her family as they suffer numerous tragedies at the hands of the Japanese before eventually gaining the willpower and means to join the communist revolution and fight against their oppressors. The opera was credited to Kim Il-sung. He wrote the opera that the film is based on. And the film version was produced by his son, Kim Jong-il. Side note, it was directed by a guy named Cho Ik yu who was head of the North Korea film studio in 1956 at the age of 22. Hmm. He'll come back in the play. By the time Kim Jong-il took over the country's film industry in 1968, Cho was the most experienced filmmaker in North Korea. Kim and Cho became very close associates. Kim producing and Cho directing. After Sea of Blood, the next one that Cho did was called Flower Girl from 1972. Flower Girl was also based on an opera and was also set in the 30s and is based on the anti-Japanese guerrilla movement during the period of Japanese occupation in Korea. All these fucking movies are about the Japanese, Mm -hmm. like literally every single fucking one of them. It's about a poor girl who picks flowers on the mountain every day to sell at the market. And she does this for a sick mom or some shit. I don't know. Anyway, she gets embroiled in the revolutionary movement against Japan and things happen. Boring things happen. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, The Flower Girl is based on a play written by Kim Il-sung, again, in the 1930s, while he was imprisoned by the Japanese. The film was probably the most important North Korean film made up to this point, culturally speaking, at least. It was immensely popular both domestically and abroad, particularly in China. 
It was the first North Korean film to win an international film award at the 18th Karlovy International Film Festival. I can't fucking pronounce. I guess they were like, we're making these great movies. We need to put them out in the world and be like a contender in international cinema. Well, they were also pushing them out to other Soviet countries and communist countries. I guess that makes sense. Like, yeah, this thing was big in China and, you know, Latvia or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. On the heels of this successful film, Kim Jong-il decided to write a book called On the Art of the Cinema. That book's still in print, by the way. You can order it from Amazon. Really? Yeah, Kim Jong-il's film book. And in it, Kim Jong-il further developed the idea of the Juche art movement in cinema, claiming that it is cinema's duty to help develop the people into true communists and as a means to completely eradicate capitalist elements. Those are quotes. Okay, well, maybe not that part of it. Yeah. And it would set the tone for movies produced for the rest of the decade, which would prove to be a problem. Let's flash forward to 1978, because that's where the real meat of the story takes place. First up, there was a notable North Korean film that was released called Unsung Heroes. And it's a North Korean war drama miniseries about a spy and soldier in the Korean War. And it's like over 20 hours long. So mm-hmm. it's like a miniseries. Oh, shit. It was filmed and released in multiple parts between 1978 and 1981. And it got local acclaim, of course, and acclaim in China, I believe. But why I note this is that it features two American defectors, Joseph Dresnock and Charles Roberts, as actors. They play the bad guys in the film. Hmm. Fun fact, the U.S. State Department obtained a copy of this movie in 1996 and were able to identify the two defectors. Apparently, this was the first evidence in 30 years that Jenkins was still alive. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had That's interesting. Ago. Yeah. But like I mentioned, in spite of how popular these films were locally, and of course, that's all North Koreans had, so what else were they going to watch? Kim Jong-il knew the ugly truth. He knew that North Korean films fucking sucked. Mm-hmm. And all he had to do was look to the South because South Korean films were way ahead in quality and in creativity than the North Korean films were. And this is where things get great because I believe he confided this to Cho IQ, his main film guy. And Cho came up with an idea. He said, maybe the best way to make better films is to get better filmmakers. And by that, he meant kidnap better filmmakers. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what they did. This brings us to Shin Sang-ok and Che Yoon-hee, a famous South Korean director-actress couple Quick history on them, Che was an actress described as the Elizabeth Taylor of South Korea. After marrying director Shin in 1945, the two founded the Shin Film Company. Che went on to act in over 130 films and was considered one of the biggest stars of South Korean film in the 1960s and 70s. Shin was basically the Steven Spielberg of South Korea, Mm -hmm. making over 100 films in the 60s and 70s. They were a true power couple. However, by 1978, while still popular, they had divorced. Both of their careers suffered because of this. Shin was doing great work in the earlier part of the 70s, became less active as the decade went on, partially because of the censorship and the issues with the acting military government that was in South Korea at the time. Mm -hmm. But also most of the films he directed during that period ended up being flops. And then on top of all of that, he ran afoul of the government. I didn't really research what exactly did to piss off the government, but they shut his studio down. Mm -hmm. So he was out of business. Mm -hmm. As for Che... With the current political climate in South Korea, plus the divorce and her age, because she was in her 50s at this time, which, you know, aging actresses, it's hard to get work. Parts dried up for her. Mm -hmm. So she started looking outside the country for film prospects. And it was kind of bleak until one day she gets an offer for a business meeting in Hong Kong to discuss opening a new film studio. But it was a setup. Yeah. She was abducted there and put on a boat and taken to North Korea when she went to meet the future financier of this movie studio. When she got there on the dock after several days of where they drugged her and kept her drugged. That's crazy. Kim Jong-il met her on the dock and like took a selfie with her basically and like was smiling. You can find this picture. It's on the internet. Maybe you can post it on the side or something. But he's thrilled and she's like, what the fuck? What the fuck's going That's on crazy. here? crazy. 
she was initially freaked out too besides being abducted because once she realized she was in North Korea she thought she was being brought there as a sex slave for Kim Jong-il's father Kim Il-sung but no it was just because Kim Jong-il was such a big fan of her movies and so he ended up putting her up in this nice villa I mean great accommodation especially for North Korea but of course it was surrounded by barbed wire and Mm -hmm. had guards yeah and so he did that and then he would take her around to parties Mm -hmm. he never tried to sleep with her or anything but he would take her into parties and show her off and this went on for about five years yeah yeah Well, during this time, not long after she disappeared, rumors went around that her ex-husband had something to do with it. So he went to Hong Kong to investigate because there were, you know, rumors that he'd killed her or had her made her go away. And Mm -hmm. so he knew the last known place she had been was Hong Kong. So he went there to investigate. And then he was kidnapped pretty much the same way and taken to North Korea. He was also put up in a nice villa, which had guards and everything, but he tried to escape twice. Mm. So they threw his ass in prison where he stayed for a number of years. In the middle of that, he got his ass beat. He he went through brainwashing sessions. He, he was treated pretty shitty. Jeez. Once they thought his re-education was complete, you know, because he started playing along because it wasn't getting any better. Right. He was actually taken to Pyongyang in 1983. It was 1983 at this point. And he met with Kim Jong-il to learn why he was abducted in North Korea. But the way that Kim Jong-il did this is fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Which Everything in this is fucking crazy. Yeah. When they released Shin from prison, they took about a week or 10 days to fatten him up and make him look less fucked up mm-hmm. and heal up. And then when he was brought to meet Kim Jong-il, it was at this big ass party, which is also where he met up with his former wife there. It's the first time they'd seen each other since she was kidnapped. Right. Five years before. Yeah. yeah. So they're both like, what the fuck? You know, it was insane. And of course, he looks like shit. You know, they just try to clean him up. Be like, oh, nothing happened to him. He's fine. He hasn't mm-hmm. been in prison for years, whatever. So that night, they went back to their villa because at that point, he had given them one to share. Mm-hmm. He put them back together. And they went to their villa, went into the bathroom, turned on the, sh- you know, the water to make sure they weren't being listened to, and then basically caught up on everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. So once they got all caught up, the next thing they started talking about was how to escape. Mm-hmm. But they knew they had to play the long game. Because he tried to escape and kept getting caught. And eventually he was just going to get killed if he kept doing it. So there's two important things that they came up with as a means to escape. First one was to just play along with what Kim Jong-il had in store for them. Right. And the second one I'll tell you about later as it ties into okay. this. So while they made their plans, Kim Jong-il made his. And for about seven months, he had them pour over the North Korean film archives. So as I mentioned before, he was a big film buff. He'd seen all the movies Che and Shin had made, but he also had movies from all over the world. He had a huge fucking warehouse archive of films mm. that had several film viewing rooms in it and everything. Wow. He had a huge bootlegging operation, so he would steal films from other countries and just had them all in there. Hmm. And so what he would do for seven months was he would tell Shay and Chen, here's your assignment. Check out all these movies anytime you want, and, uh, and we'll discuss them. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a dream. I know, right? So after they'd been doing that for a while, then he finally summoned them together in you know his office or whatever. And he said, you know, I want to talk straight with you guys. I know North Korean movies are fucking garbage. <laughs> he pretty much said that. And he knew that they were way behind the rest of the world in terms of film quality. Now, like I said earlier, he had written the book, the only book for that matter in North Korea, on the subject of filmmaking called On the Art and the Cinema. And it was basically an instruction manual on how to make films in North Korea. Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-il wrote this fucking book. So it's his fault the movies fucking suck. Right. Because no one was going to deviate from the rules he'd laid down in this book. Anyone who was making movies knew exactly what was written in this book and what they could and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. So the reason they make shitty films is because no one's going to step outside of that in North Korea. And, And he knows that. 
Right. But he basically blamed the filmmakers. It's funny. He's like, they're too spoiled here. You know, they, they know they're going to get fed whether they make a good movie or bad movie. And that's the problem with socialism. <laughs> they're too in, spoiled. You know, yeah. In North Some, Korea. Yeah. yeah, basically. It's crazy. So his idea was to get Shin and Che to start making movies and to make them great. Make movies great again yeah. in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Oh, and on the side note, he also suggested that they get married again. Which they did. Mm-hmm. And when Kim Jong-il tells you you should do something, yeah, that you means you it, need yeah. to do it. And they did. So now it was time to get to work. Wait, hold on. I have a question. Yeah. But nobody else knew that they were there. No. He was like taking them to parties and like, you know, but yeah. nobody in South Korea or around the rest of the world knew that this was happening. Nobody had any idea where the hell they were. Right. Oh, that's crazy. Or what they were doing. They just, they both just up and disappeared. Hmm. Now, there are instances where they have kidnapped people before, but usually for more technical means or for some other things. Yeah, they'll, sure. they'll steal a scientist here and there, mm-hmm. maybe a, you know, a doctor, right? but never somebody in the creative arts before. That's yeah. unheard of. But yeah, so nobody knew where the fuck they were. And we'll come back to that, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But here in the story, Shin was like, okay, well, let's get to work. So he opens up his own studio again. And he named it after himself, just like his previous studio, which was completely unheard of in North Korea. Like, everything was named after the people's fucking party or whatever. And he was like, this is motherfucking Shin Studio. That's what we're calling it. Mm -hmm. So he did that. He started that up. And, you know, and he explained that's necessary to make better movies. He was also, you know, trying to gain Kim Jong-il's trust because he was also explaining that, hey, to make better movies, we need to have better location shooting. Mm -hmm. International locations. See, he was thinking about trying to figure out a way to gain trust so they can escape. But his first movie that he wanted to make for North Korea, of course, he wanted to see what creative choices he could get away with. But he also knew that for the story, he had to play it safe a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. don't go too far outside of the norm of what's been produced, but just make it a little bit better. You know, have right. a he still more wanted to make a good movie, even if he's in captivity. But yeah, but but also didn't want to stretch too far too soon. Right. You know, work his way up to making better movies. So he wanted to play it safe, but he had some ulterior motives. So he suggested to Kim that he could adapt one of the plays written by Kim Il-sung during the guerrilla years on film. Shin settled on a particular play about an emissary incident called Bloody Conference, which he had also seen on stage. So he'd seen some of the plays that were mm-hmm. produced while he was there. But Shin was also drawn to it because the event it portrays is taking place abroad in The Hague in hopes that he could probably escape while he's filming on location. So he's like, yeah. So like I said, getting international locations, but he's even in his first film, he's like, this is a great thing to film because it's overseas. And Kim Jong-il, during these conversations that they had when they were talking about fixing North Korean cinema, he had said that he was interested in international settings, hoping that they would elevate North Korean cinema to the international level. So he had these dreams early on that he wanted these films to be played outside, even beyond China and other Soviet countries, like the earlier films like Sea of Blood. Mm -hmm. He really wanted these to be on the same competitive level as South Korea, but other international films. So he liked the idea of getting all these different locations to do that. And so Kim accepted the film idea for this movie, but he didn't allow Shin to travel to The Hague, despite telling him earlier that he was free to travel anywhere in film. Anywhere to Kim clearly meant anywhere within the Eastern Bloc. So it's Mm -hmm. like, sorry, sorry, guy. So Shin's first film for North Korea was called An Emissary of No Return, and it was released in 1984. The film details the dramatized story of the Hague secret emissary affair. The affair ensued when the Korean emperor, King Gojong, sent three unauthorized emissaries to talk at the Hague Convention of 1907. The film and the play is based on a real event, but it's highly fictionalized and propagandized as North Korean shit is. 
Anyway, An Emissary of No Return became a big hit in North Korea and was the most significant release of that year. Few North Koreans had seen anything like it. For those born after the vision of Korea in 1945, like the shots of The Hague or anywhere that was outside North Korea, they just never even really knew these places existed the way Mm -hmm. that they do. And there's a book quote in here. According to Paul Fisher, author of a Kim Jong-il production, which is the name of the book, the film marks a turning point in North Korean culture. The first time that even the citizens of the lowest social status were able to see, however subtly, the world outside the workers' paradise. That was not what Kim Il-sung told them that it was. So it's like, it's unheard of that that happened. Right. The film was also used for indoctrination, too. So screenings were made compulsory and... (laughs) And were followed by group discussions in which cinema goers were supposed to relate the main character's suicide to their own lives. So it's like, how did this relate to you? You know, the gun to your face. Okay, so this film was a big hit in North Korea. Shin was on his way to being, you know, the filmmaker of the country, right? He was already brought in. It was a big hit because they made it be a big hit. Right, right. Yeah. But let's back up and talk about Cho Ikyu for a minute. Remember, he was the head of the Propaganda and Agitation Department of Film in North Korea. And so he was like the big dog. And now this import from South Korea who's like buddied up with Kim Jong-il, he doesn't like him. Right, right. And so on this film production, when they were making Emissary of No Return, he was trying to undercut Shin in any way that he could. Right, He was like trying to belittle him in front of the cast and the production crew. And Shin was basically like, you keep doing that, I'm going to tell Kim Jong-il, fucking stop. Mm-hmm. And so we've stopped, but they didn't like each other. And that kind of carries through and you'll see how that plays out. But Emissary No Return was sent to a film festival in Czechoslovakia, where it was screened in July of 1984, and it scored a surprise victory at the Special Jury Prize for Best Director category. Mm. Shin was there at the festival and announced at a press conference that, contrary to the truth, he had gone to North Korea voluntarily because he was told he had to do that. Right, sure. After Emissary No Return, he would direct Runaway later that year. So Runaway was the second film, supposedly seven films that Shin would go on to direct for North Korea. I've heard different numbers, but it seems like... Seven was the magic number that most mm-hmm. of my sources agreed upon. But the second one of those seven was Runaway. And Shin would actually say that this was his favorite movie he made for them, and probably one of the best movies he's ever made, period. Wow. So Runaway is based on a short story of the same name set in the 1920s. The protagonist, a guy named Song, has to return to the countryside to see his ill father after his cousin conspires with the Japanese occupier. See? Same shit. Mm-hmm. Song is forced to immigrate to Manchuria, then gets wrapped up in the local guerrillas and frees people and becomes a revolutionary. It's all that revolutionary shit against Japan. Oh, and the climax of the film, the revolutionaries take revenge on a Japanese by blowing up a railway. Fun fact, the climax of the film features an actual exploding and derailing train. Shin was unable to figure out how to shoot the scene with either scale models or other special effects, so he jokingly asked Kim Jong-il if he could supply him with a real train instead. And to his surprise, Kim Jong-il was like, yeah, I got a train. I got some explosives. Wow, transaster. Yeah. So Shin was like, oh, shit, I better make this count. So, you know, he took all the precautions because he knew he only had one shot and it came off beautifully. And that's considered like probably one of the most iconic images of North Korean cinema is this fucking exploding train. And it's cool. I've seen pictures of it or at least a a brief film clip of it. I haven't been able to find the whole film or that scene anywhere, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty cool. Fun fact, Shin himself called this a high point in his entire career, admitting that such a spectacle is only possible in North Korea. He can do whatever he wants. Kim Jong-un do whatever the fuck he wants. And he also mentioned that of the novelty of the film and everything, he was also able to do incredible things like introduce the word love in the movie and show affection between people because that was taboo in North Korean movies up to that point. It's weird to think about, but yeah. yeah. Another fun fact, the soundtrack of Runaway features cover versions of songs by ABBA. 
Following the release of the film, North Korean youths adopted these songs and organized illegal parties. So funny, illegal ABBA parties. <laughs> yeah, so risky. wild and crazy. <laughs> All right, so his next film was Salt from 1985, and it's a North Korean tragedy. Che stars in this one as well. I meant to say that she starred in Runaway as well, but she starred in this one, uh, and she plays an unnamed mother who disapproves of her son after he runs away with the gorillas, but eventually comes to see them as fighting for a just cause. And I know every time I say gorilla, you think that he's going off into the jungle. And yeah, it takes me a second every single time. Yeah, yeah but he's joining Freedom Fighters. Oddly enough, foreign critics reviewed this film favorably, which is unusual for a North Korean film, so it got some good press. Mm -hmm. As a result, Shin and Che were allowed to travel to the 14th Moscow International Film Festival in 1985, where Che won the Best Actress Award for her role, and is the highest honor a North Korean film has received to date. Kim Il-sung praised the film for its commitment to realism. Interesting fact, many North Korean defectors have reportedly approached Che and thanked her for her role in Salt. Huh. It's an important movie. Later that year, Shen would make The Tale of Shim Chung, a musical film that has been compared to a Busby Berkeley-style musical. I don't know shit about that movie, but I just wanted to point it out. The next movie I want to discuss, though, is the big one. This is the big budget one, all the stops. And this one's called Pulgasari, and that's also from 1985. And it's essentially an action horror film, giant monster movie, mm-hmm. a la Godzilla. Oh, cool. It's the North Korean Godzilla, basically. Yeah. Oddly enough, it's based off a South Korean film of the same name from 1962 that's now a lost film. Mm. But you could see some f- clips from that, and comparing the two, the South Korean one looks like garbage. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I wow. said, this one was a big budget, sweeping epic, and Kim Jong-il really wanted this to succeed, so he was like, I'm going to make the best Godzilla movie ever. So he even managed to get filmmakers from original Godzilla productions to come down and work on the film with Shin. Oh, wow. One of the main performers who wore the suit, the Godzilla suit, wore the Pulgasari killer monster suit. Yeah. What did this monster look like? I can show you pictures. Yeah, so that's what it looks like. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a cool monster. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad at all. It's pretty decent. A little bit about the plot of this movie. So it's basically about these farmers that are rising up against the evil king and this woman either births this thing or somehow conjures this monster out of herself. Mm-hmm. And it grows as they feed it like iron. Not like iron, like like but like swords and metal. Oh. And it grows, but it, then it keeps growing and getting out of control. It helps them defeat the king, which is like this huge battle scene, which is pretty impressive. And actually, Kim Jong-il got thousands of North Korean soldiers to like be in extras in the oh, film. Cool. It's very well done. It's a very well-produced movie. It's also fucking weird just because of the way that the monster eats more metal. Finally, it kind of gets out of control. And then they have to... I forgot what they do to kill it. But essentially, the woman dies and then absorbs the monster again and... It dies too. It's fine. I don't know. It's fucking weird. I watched yeah. some of this. It's online, so we can put it on the site, but mm-hmm. it's a well made, weird fucking movie. Yeah. Fun fact Polgasori became the first North Korean film to be released in South Korean theaters in 2000. Hmm. Years later, in 2006, Polgasori made its New York debut at the end of the Columbia University Japanese Culture Center's year long Godzilla Festival. Hmm. So, is this a good movie? Is it considered to be a good movie? I think it's considered to be one of the best North Korea's ever done okay. and would ever do. I think it's probably not a bad movie and 
probably entertaining to Western audiences. Mm-hmm. I think it's got a very Korean theme, so I don't think right. we're going to miss a lot of that yeah, yeah. and not get it. And, and specifically North Korean theme, which you know even South Koreans will only get a hint of what that's about. So we'll definitely not understand that. Right. But it's well made. Like I mean, it's not sure. like oh man, this looks like shit. It looks really good. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of money on it, and it was really successful. And at this time, and I didn't really talk about this, but the world knew that Shay and Shin were alive. Of course. Yeah. You know, because they were going to film festivals here and there. Yeah, she won um, Best Actress. She won Best yeah. Actress, but they were even allowed to travel to Western countries. But of course, they always had these North Korean bodyguards following them everywhere. Right. And so there was no way for them to escape at this time. So they had to live up to the facade and pretend that they were happy doing what they were doing and happy that they were there. But after finishing Polgasari, the two were in talks with Kim Jong to do another film and around this time this was in 1986 they took a trip to vienna kim asked them to travel there to find someone that could finance a biographical film about genghis khan that he wanted them to make Mm -hmm. while they were there and they checked into the intercontinental hotel in vienna they met a japanese journalist for an interview and while they were conducting the interview they asked the korean bodyguards to stand outside because they didn't want them in there during the interview like i said they always had these guards around them so they asked to go outside and so while they're at the hotel before this interview, they had told a hotel employee that they were planning to defect mm-hmm. and to please let the United States Embassy know that they want to go defect there. Wow. And so during this interview, they made a break for it. Mm-hmm. They just hauled ass out of the fucking hotel. They grabbed a taxi cab at the interviewer and they just hauled ass to the American Embassy. Wow. That interview went a little different as expected. Then, yeah, yeah. You know? I think they let the interviewer know what their intent was too. I'm sure, yeah. And they all just jumped in the cab hauled ass to the American embassy. And then the North Korean guards found out and they got in a car and chased them. This really happened. So mm-hmm. they were being chased by the North Koreans and then they get caught in traffic and they're like, we're not going to make it. Right. So they literally got out of the cab and ran the rest of the way to the fucking American embassy. Wow. And they got in. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. Obviously, Kim Jong-il was not happy about this. Initially, mm-hmm. he thought that the Americans kidnapped them mm-hmm. back. <laughs> right. Well, Yeah. <laughs> It's like, no, normal people don't do that. <laughs> no. But right after he realized what happened, he sent out a statement, you know, and said, hey, they were here voluntarily. Right. I didn't abduct shit, didn't do anything, blah, blah, blah. Now, also talk about Cho EQ for a minute. So once they ran away, he was blamed for that because he was the one that was supposed to wrangle them. He was the number one film propaganda guy and he was supposed to keep them in check and they got away from him. So mm-hmm. Kim Jong-il blamed him for that escape and he was removed from that department. He wasn't removed from the earth, but he was removed from that department. Yeah. And he was sent to live in the countryside for a while. Nobody knows where he lived for a long period of time. He managed to recover politically over the years but yeah that guy was like he was fucked for a minute I bet. but back to shin and che so although at this point they were now free right they'd finally gotten out of north korea after being there for years but then they had another problem which was convincing everyone that they didn't go over to north korea voluntarily and just make up the kidnapping story mm-hmm. now as i said north korea had already put out a statement that they defected to north korea Shin had already said that voluntarily at a film festival. So he was on record saying, hey, I I went to North Korea on my own. So did Che. Well, you remember what I said earlier? I said when they were in discussions in their villa that first night and they were coming up with a plan, the first one was getting Kim Jong-il to trust them enough so they could find a window to escape, Mm -hmm. which is what they did. The second one was to acquire a tape recorder and record as many conversations as they possibly could with Kim Jong-il so that they have some sort of record of what happened to them. Because mm-hmm. at that point, they didn't know if they were going to come out alive. Right, right. So they did just that. 
So remember on that occasion where I talked about how they met Kim at the archive and he laid out that North Korean films suck and here's what I want you to do? Mm-hmm. They recorded all of that. Oh, wow. You can listen to it. Mm-hmm. So they, they managed to smuggle the tapes out at a different occasion than their actual escape. But that was their only way to prove that they weren't defectors. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that, fun fact on that, is that during the time that the U.S. authorities were debriefing them about Kim Jong-il and their experience in North Korea, they were also listening to those tapes. And for those in the U.S. government gathering intelligence on North Korea, listening to those tapes was the first time Kim's voice was ever heard. Oh, that wow. was like the first time anyone heard his voice, I think, mm-hmm. outside the country. And for sure, the U.S. government had never heard what this man sounded like. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy shit. Anyway, after around the time that they were being debriefed by the U.S. authorities, they were living covertly under American protection in Reston, Virginia, just down the way from where uh, I live. Yeah. Yeah. They did that for a few years, and then they moved to Los Angeles, where Shin worked in the 1990s under the pseudonym Simon Sheen. He didn't have a lot of success, though, and unfortunately, he only did a few movies. And fun fact, the movies he did, or rather the one he directed, was Three Ninjas Knuckle Up from 1995. Uh, so the kids movie, but a sequel that no one's even ever heard of. Yes. Yeah. And then he was executive producer on Three Ninjas Kickback and Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain. Apparently, there are sequels to the movie Three Ninjas. Yeah. Yeah. You knew that when times got tough and there seemed no way out, they'd be back. Three Ninjas Knuckle Up, Colt, Rocky, and Tum Tum spring into action. They may be small, but they're dino bite. Three Ninjas Knuckle Up. So that's where this guy ended up doing three ninja movies. I guess it's better than Polgasari or I don't know. No, I'm saying I guess it's better than being kidnapped and being forced to make movies in um, North Korea. Yeah. I don't know. I, I haven't seen the, <laughs> any of the three ninjas movies. So I imagine Polgasari is probably better than any yeah. of those. But then after their stint in Hollywood, they moved back to South Korea uh, back in 1999. Both Shin and Che are dead now. Shin died in 2006 and Che in 2018. Mm-hmm. And as Did far they as they stay married? That's what I was going to say. As far as I know, they stayed together up oh, until wow. Shin's death. So yeah, they, they got back together. Yep. As for North Korea, they have not had any type of international film success since Shin's time there. That may have something to do with their current ruler, Kim Jong-un, who didn't really inherit his father or grandfather's lust for film. Mm-hmm. He doesn't particularly give a shit about it. But what is interesting is instead of film, Kim Jong-un's regime sees uh, more potential in the format of TV dramas. So TV propaganda, Mm -hmm. such as sitcoms. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently, through TV dramas, the North Korean people learn what the regime says constitutes being a good citizen, showing loyalty to the party, using science and technology to advance national interests, and thinking creatively in problem solving and facing the nation's continued economic hardships. That's basically the shit that's on North Korean TV. Mm-hmm. Compared to Shin's movies, these sitcoms aren't exactly subtle in their messaging. The 2013 television drama Young Researchers follows four Pyongyang middle schoolers as they compete for the top prize of the science fair, a rocket launcher. Mm. I kind of want to see that show. Yeah. And then there's a, a two-part slapstick sitcom, Our Neighbors, and it's an advertisement for the luxurious lifestyle that party loyalists could attain when they earn their admission to the capital's most prestigious neighborhood. So that's mm-hmm. how they. That's how North Korea puts most of its entertainment resources and propaganda resources. Got it. 
Although, in spite of that, and this stuff seems a little more in-your-face propaganda, apparently some things are slipping into the culture. For instance, the sitcom I just mentioned has little details of progress in them. For example, pictures on the wall that used to be of North Korean leaders are now families smiling together. Mm -hmm. Not saying that these programs are anything grander than the mouthpiece for the Kim dynasty. Still, things like this show ever so few bits of social change in this closed country. And I can't help think but that Shin and Che contributed to that in some way, Mm -hmm. right? Showed the North Korean people you know, little bits of the outside world and ways that they can express themselves to one another in yeah. film. You know, pushing films that manage to get away with characters declaring love for one another and not just the state. Right. So that's it. That's my episode in North Korea. You could see how Kim Jong-il really wanted international success, kind of like how early Soviet films were about trying to get success but he was also his own worst enemy. He wrote that shitty book, which constricted the film industry mm-hmm. to where he had to kidnap somebody to make better films. And they're still kind of shitty films, but they're miles above the garbage that was produced in country. Right. So it's interesting that communist countries and dictator-led countries, like the only way to make good movies is to not be a dictator-led country. Right, right. (laughs) Because those restrictions automatically like inhibit any real creativity. Well, it's not they inhibit it, but they basically mandate what the movies are going to be about. Right. Yeah. And so there's anything beyond that, especially someplace closed off like North Korea, there's, they're so worried about any outside influence that there's no creativity. You can't have any. Right. You just have to make a movie about boring life. Yeah. And they're so yeah. boring. Yeah. They are just so bad. It's funny that he's like, our movies suck. Mm-hmm. He's like, I had to kidnap you because our movies suck. That's how bad right. our film industry is. So anyway, I found this story to be fucking fascinating. It really is. Yeah. And I knew about this story before, but I didn't know all the details, especially about the individual films that he made. It's fascinating. Yeah. So that's my probably too prestigious topic <laughs> for this podcast. But I mean, there are trashy films in here. So yeah, absolutely. Well, good. I'm glad you did this one. I knew about this, but again, a lot of it was news to me. So I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, Thanks, listeners. This is the end of season seven. In four years, we'll come up with season eight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who knows? Who knows what the hell we're going to do? But thanks for coming back for this group of episodes. We hope you enjoy them. We'll see you in North Korea somewhere or whatever. I don't know. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at... Oh, one last thing. (laughs) I forgot. I forgot something. Remember that film Nuki I spoke about a few episodes back in my Nukes episode? For those of you who don't remember... That is the um, South African Mac and Me ripoff from 1987. It's basically, you know, an E.T.-like movie where Nuki and his brother Miko come to Earth and stupid shit, right? I talked about that. Well, there's a laser disc copy of Nuki in the International Friendship Museum in North Korea. Between the stars and the sky. Between the clouds and the earth. Between the lights and the wilderness. In a land unlike any he's known, Nuki must find his brother. He'll need a lot of courage and a little friendship. We have no space creature here. It's Nuki! Nuki, for everyone who ever wanted a special friend. See, it all ties together. Yeah. Nuki, North Korea. I'm just wrapping up this fucking season with a bow. (laughs) So, anyway, bye.
Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we share a lot of additional content. And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. It's about a poor rural girl around whom the plot. A poor rural. It's about a poor. See, a poor rural. The rural juror. About a poor girl. The first one was playing ball and trying to escape, and the second one I'll talk about later. Playing ball. The first one was playing along with whatever plans. Oh, I thought you said playing ball. Yeah, let's we'll just scrap that. Dictator cinema: The films of North Korea. And that's as good as that fucking thing's gonna get. Wake your ass up. I'm, I'm awake. I was just resting. So he jokingly asked Kim Jong Il if he could supply him with a, a real train instead. What the fuck? Fuck you, garbage truck.